This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mystery and thriller readers, this one is for you. We're giving away 10 of the best mysteries and thrillers of the year so far to one lucky Book Riot reader or podcast listener. The prize pack includes Miracle Creek by Angie Kim, The Lost Man by Jane Harper, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, and much more. Just go to bookriot.com slash best mysteries to enter to win. And don't forget to leave your lights on. Welcome to For Rio, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this episode on Friday, September 13th. Hello, Alice. How are you? Uh, good. Happy Friday the 13th to you. So close to Halloween. So close to Halloween. Did anything like unlucky or terrible happen to you today? <laughs> yes, it did. Oh my gosh. I'm <laughs> so glad that you asked because I would not have had something unless – okay, great. So I am packing to move. My move is tomorrow at 10 a.m. I'm going back oh. to pack after this episode is recorded. But um, I it was out of packing tape and down I walked to the local grocery store. I'm doing little walking movements. You can't see it with my arms, but I am. <laughs> anyway – so I went down there and they were completely out of packing tape. And I was so no. frustrated because I had been packing for like five hours and all I needed was this one thing. So I walked down to CVS and they had it and it was fine. So it's not like a thrilling story, but I was very distraught in the moment that they had no packing tape. That is very distressing when you're packing. Like that's literally the thing you need. Oh, gosh. That sounds very distressing. So call it a Friday the 13th moment, if you will. I mean, I will. <laughs> Excellent. Well, best of luck moving. Moving is the literal worst. Oh, yeah. We were talking right beforehand about uh, moving books and yes. <laughs> how Whoa. utterly challenging it is. The last time I moved, I had even more. I've been like slowly bringing books over to my girlfriends and – but so when I moved last time, I had even more books than this time. And I've just, the movers just seemed so disheartened when they, because <laughs> they're like heavy boxes. Even yeah. if you do the small boxes, they're heavy as hell. So um, I don't, I don't know. I feel, I just feel bad. I keep trying to bring small stacks over in like the last few days I've been doing that. Yeah. The last time I moved, I think I had, I don't, I wish I remembered the exact number, but it was more than 20 boxes of books. And my family is just so tired of moving them around. Uh, and, and I don't blame them. It's terrible. So book people are not good people to move. I have <laughs> the moral of that story. I have one question, RE, your, your boxes of books with moving. How many of them would you estimate percentage-wise You've are ones that you've just never read and have moved to multiple apartments? Oh, boy. That is um, probably – well, mm, gosh. You can even go with a little or most or like half. I think probably like half were unread and half were read. And of the unreads, maybe like a third or a, to a half had been 
moved multiple times. <laughs> it's a it's a higher number than it ought to be. <laughs> totally understand. I have a, that David McCullough biography of John Adams that I literally got the year it came out. Like I, as a teenager, I was so excited for it and I've never read it. And it's gone with me from my parents' house to my apartment of like nine years to my next apartment. And now it's getting moved again. The book that I tracked along the longest without being read is actually um, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Throw it out. <laughs> Throw it out, Kim. I think I finally did. No, I kept it because uh, my <laughs> uncle gave it to me when I was in high school. And so I carried it around oh. from when I was like 16, probably, uh, until like I think this last move, I finally uh, dumped it. So yeah. <laughs> yikes. I mean, sentimental value. I get it. But no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have one very quick piece of follow-up uh, before we get on to everything else. Um, last uh, podcast, I talked about how excited I was about the first images from the upcoming film, Just Mercy, which is based on a memoir by Brian Stevenson called Just, Mer- Just Mercy. Uh, the trailer for that finally came out, I think, just a little while after the pictures. Uh, it looks fabulous. Go, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but I am very excited about this movie and i think the trailer just like made me even more excited so just mercy trailer is out movie is out in january 2020 hooray awesome and with that our first sponsor is born to fly by steve shankin so a few short years after american women finally got the right to vote which again was in 1920 a group of trailblazers soared to new heights in the first women's air race across the u.s so this follows uh, people like Amelia Earhart, who, you know, there's that eternal mystery about her, although it's not actually a mystery because she died on an island. and We know it now. Anyway, uh, Marvel Crossin, who built a plane before she learned how to fly. Amazing. Louise Thaden, who shattered altitude records. And Eleanor Smith, who made headlines when she flew under the Brooklyn Bridge at age 17. Yeah, under. You heard that right. So if you are interested in hearing about amazing women doing super cool things, mostly in the 1920s, which... Who wouldn't be? Check out Born to Fly by Steve Schenken. Thank you for sponsoring. Excellent. All right. So for our first uh, segment, which is nonfiction news, um, I actually I have two articles to share that we'll link in the show notes that are both about uh, General James Mattis. Uh, and I found these both within a couple of days each other, and I thought they were kind of funny as a pair. So um, I will kind of briefly summarize uh, both of them, I guess, and then we can kind of chit-chat about it. So uh, the first one is from NBC News, and it is about how one of uh, James Mattis's ex-aides is claiming that the Pentagon is holding up his memoir and he's filed a lawsuit to that effect, uh, claiming that the Pentagon is prolonging the approval of his memoir, the review of his manuscript and the approval of his memoir uh, in order to benefit the former Secretary James Mattis, who also has a book that recently came out. So uh, the gist of it is that um, guy, his game is Guy Snodgrass, a longtime Navy pilot who worked as his communications director and speechwriter, uh, is filed a lawsuit claiming that the Defense Department has unreasonably delayed reviewing the manuscript of his memoir. And so he basically says that um, they will, he says it is happening so that Mattis's memoir, which is Call Sign Chaos Learning to Lead, uh, is coming out first. So that book is scheduled, I think, to come out on September 3rd. Um, I guess I don't know if that actually happened, but um, because they're writing about the Pentagon and that kind of security stuff like that, they have to be reviewed. And so he's uh, alleging that the Pentagon is holding his up on purpose, which uh, I think that's kind of fascinating. So uh, just like a weird uh, nonfiction political kind of story. Um, 
So we'll see like when that actually comes out, if that turns out to be true, but that's kind of a funny, uh, yeah, I just, I was interested in that. I think the, especially like political books like that, learning about how they come together is interesting. And so that this one has resulted in a lawsuit is, uh, is interesting. So the second article is a little bit more in the depth and it's from Vox. And the headline is great. It is, it's time to talk about James Mattis's involvement with the Thanos scandal. Uh, and it is basically uh, James Mattis is coming out with his book. And this article is arguing like, we need to talk more about how he was on the board of Theranos because he was on the board of Theranos and uh, was involved in helping that company uh, whether he knew it or not, continue with their major defrauding of investors. Uh, and you and I are both obsessed with Theranos, uh, which we both have read about a lot in James Carey Rowe's book, Bad Blood. Um, so I'm not going to kind of go through the whole article, but it's just a really interesting dive into how James Mattis profited from being connected to Theranos, um, how he hasn't really been questioned by anybody about it. Like it just sort of hasn't become a big thing that he was one of the people who was on the board, even though uh, maybe it, it should have. Um, and he's kind of benefited from that. So uh, we'll link to that article as well. If you're a person who is as obsessed with uh, Theranos as Alice and I are. Uh, but yeah, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on either of those. Well, I looked up Call Sign Chaos by Jim Mattis, and it is number one on the Amazon nonfiction charts in terms of most really? copies sold. Huh. So, yeah, so it seems to be out. Um, obviously not on our radar. I'm unsurprised by that, though. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, I just feel like we don't, I think, tend to go for military no, books. but I don't know. I but, feel like I would have seen more, like, news stories about it, but maybe these were the – I don't – yeah, weird. I'm surprised. No, I totally agree. Um, also, you remember who else was on the Theranos board? Henry Kissinger. Yes. There were so many people. It was real weird. Um, I was looking up Jim Mattis prior to the podcast, and on Wikipedia, it says that his uh, he is noted for his interest in the study of military history and world history, really? and he has a personal library that once – I'm not sure why this is lessened over time – but once included over 7,000 volumes. That would be a lot to move, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How many small <laughs> packing boxes would it take to move 7,000 books? Oh, man. It's like a terrible uh, math equation, right? Like, if you have 7,000 books, how many boxes does it take? Ooh. I would actually be interested in figuring that out, but I would have no idea how to do it. I guess I could just figure out how many books fit in one of my many boxes that I'm packing <laughs> right now. Uh, we'll get back to you guys, if I remember to, on how many boxes that would be. And, yeah, with that... Uh, second sponsor for the episode. Very excited about this. Yale Needs Women from Source Books. Yes, it does. In the winter of 1969, young women across the country sent in applications to Yale University for the first time. The Ivy League institution dedicated to graduating, quote, 1,000 male leaders, unquote, each year had finally decided to open its doors to the nation's top female students. So this landmark decision was thought of as a huge step forward for women's equality in education. But was it? So in Yale Needs Women, they talk about the story of this first generation of women at Yale and how they fought against the backward-leaning traditions of a centuries-old institution and created the opportunities that would carry them into the future. We're very excited about them sponsoring because <laughs> moving into... Our new book section, which is entirely new books for this last part of the podcast, it is New Book Bonanza. 
my first pick is Yale Needs Women. <laughs> How the Yay. first group of girls rewrote the rules of an Ivy League giant by Ann Gardner Perkins. So excited that they're a sponsor. Um, yeah, so I was really interested in this book. I saw it at a conference first, and it was like a there was a big flurry to get copies of it um, because source books, you know, they also did Radium Girls, so this kind of felt like a similar type of book. And in this one, yeah, they're talking about how Yale had obviously only been men um, since its inception, how it was uh, definitely at the time known as the number one university in America and was, you know, forming all their whole goal was to create leaders. And they had this new president um, whose name, I believe his first name was Kingston or Kingman. It was one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like someone who went to Yale. Anyway. <laughs> So all of the people have names like that in the book, like Chauncey is his second in command. I can't even handle it. Okay. So he, the, but this, oh, Kingman Brewster, that's his name because oh he's descended. God. Right. He's descended from Elder Brewster who came over to America in the 17th century. It's, yeah, again, hashtag Yale. Okay. So he did a lot towards like allowing like people of color to come to Yale and like that kind of stuff. And so in that way, he was very progressive. But in terms of women, he was very uncomfortable around women. A lot of men at Yale were like, we want to be co-ed because especially um, Yale was pretty isolated and it was hard for them to even see women in general. Um, so and it was the 1960s and it was just weird for them to. Um, oh, Kingman Brewster had also opened up um, he tried to make sure that there was financial aid open to any students so that uh, it essentially stopped being as much of like, you can come if, you know, you have the financial backing to pay for it um, from assumedly your family. But because of that, you had people coming from co-ed high schools instead of these like elite boarding schools that were like only for boys. So these new men coming in were like, well, we're used to being in a co-educational environment. And so they were lobbying for these women. They did this awesome, actually, grassroots kind of protest where they were like, we're going to have women in, like, shadowing classes for a week at Yale. And they just did it. And the leadership was like, we would prefer you not. And they were, they were like, too bad. They, like, went around all these dorm rooms and they got guys to promise to, like, bunk up with their friends for the week. And they, like, signed up all these girls to come in to be like, this is what it would be like if we had women. And it was uh, really effective. And so they really soon after the first group of women was admitted to Yale. And they had a terrible time of it. Because even though they were allowed in, there was stuff like the elite uh, acapella group on campus was like, well, we don't women would ruin our sound. So <laughs> we're just gonna be guys, you can form your own group. And then the marching band said, we're not gonna have any women. And this girl who came there with her trombone just because she was like, I want to study music at Yale, she like talked her way into the marching band, but they were like, that's it, only you, no one else. Because the marching band itself was like, we don't want women on it, which just blew my mind. Um, and especially because this happened like at this point, like 50 years ago, which is not that long ago. Anyway, um, it's a lot of stuff like that and just how they had to – even though, you know, it was like, oh, wow, we like kind of fixed it by admitting women. The, the systemic issues are still there. You know, um, there was still a lot of stuff about how like they, they selected the first class, not as much based on grades, but also based on their background and showing uh, if they had a history of basically being able to stand up under a lot of pressure. 
So um, if their essays pointed to that kind of experience, then they were like, okay, great, because they knew it was going to be really tough for them and that they were going to face a lot of challenges. Um, It's a really great book. I am uh, a fan. So again, that is Yale Needs Women, How the First Group of Girls Rewrote the Rules of an Ivy League Giant by Anne Gardner Perkins. That is uh, quite a quite a synergy there between our sponsor and your first pick, which was not planned. And no. I'm excited I got to use the word synergy because that is a terrible word. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, my first pick is uh, She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement by Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. And this is a book about the entire investigation into Harvey Weinstein and the journalistic process to writing and breaking that huge story, which is not the beginning of the Me Too movement, but it certainly helped uh, galvanize the Me Too movement and move it forward in a way that a lot, nothing before really, really had. So um, one of the blurbs or maybe a, a review, I can't remember exactly where I found this, but it says it reads a bit like a feminist, all the president's men, which is, uh, which is uh, all the president's men is the book about uh, Watergate and taking down Nixon by Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, and that comparison is a hundred percent right. And I am a hundred percent like into it and into this book. It is so great. So um, it just starts from the very beginning when they kind of I think Jody Cantor starts and she gets a she has a phone call with Rose McGowan who had kind of put some feelers out on Twitter saying that she had been assaulted by a producer in the film industry and so Cantor starts to kind of uh, dig in and reach out to her and that leads to meetings with other actresses and it leads to conversations with former employees but all of these women are just terrified of of coming out and speaking out for good reason and so it details their entire investigation from those very first phone calls and those first kind of attempted relationships to uh, face off with Weinstein and his lawyers and then uh, between Weinstein his lawyers and the newspaper before the story broke so the book has additional information than the kind of public stories that they've already done. Um, Many of the women who initially wouldn't go on the record um, are on the record in the book. And so it talks about how they kind of moved them from being too scared to tell their story to being comfortable being on the record about it. Um, They do some additional interviews that kind of give some more context to kind of what they were learning at the time. Um, And then another part that's really fascinating is looking at um, how uh, the culture of uh, settlements for women who uh, report someone for sexual harassment uh, and who get paid settlements, how that um, culture, which also often, um, I mean, almost entirely required women to never speak again about what had happened to them. So how that culture really contributed and allowed men to continue abusing women because victims uh, came forward, got their settlement, rightly so, but then we're prohibited from saying anything about it. And so men could continue to victimize people as long as they wanted to, as long as they had the money to pay them off. So it it looks into that and how that affected this whole thing. And the book, it closes, I haven't gotten to this part yet, but it closes with a group interview that brings together Christine Blasey Ford, uh, who's the woman who um, testified about her high school uh, assault by Brett Kavanaugh, um, and other women connected to the Me Too movement to kind of sit and talk together about what it meant to uh, share their experiences and what the costs of speaking up have been for them. So I am very much looking forward to that chapter as well. Like It is just, it is such a good book. It reminds me actually of Bad Blood um, in the sense that it is a book that um, is all about journalistic process and explaining how they reported this story and how they found the leads that they did and how they convinced people to speak to them and how they worked through 
breaking this story. And I just find that very interesting. I think given all the like bad press media is getting right now, like reading a book about how good journalism works is so important and for a story that is such a big deal and so um, vital to kind of just where we are in our culture now. It's really good. So uh, if you can and, you know, trigger warnings about sexual assault, there's some of that in the book. So if that's something that would be hard for you to read, like this might not be a book for you, but I have found it extremely interesting. So uh, that is She Said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story that Helped Ignite a Movement by Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. All you needed to say was feminist, all the president's men. (laughs) I know, I should have just stopped there. When you said that, I was like, sold. I will read this. Um, that sounds so good. Wow. It's really great. Their writing is is very good. And just like they'll sort of say, like, at the time, this is what we could share and this is what we knew. Later we have found out these other things. And they're sort of giving a, a lot more context to these stories that I think I think is really fascinating too. Dang. Um, that was not on my radar at all. So thank you for bringing that up. That is amazing. Okay. So my next pick is a big pivot. <laughs> this is will my cat eat my eyeballs big questions from tiny mortals about death by caitlin doty it's out september 10th from ww norton so caitlin doty also wrote smoke gets in your eyes and other lessons from the crematory and from here to eternity traveling the world to find the good death um i have the latter i hadn't read it so this was the first one of hers i'd read and it is a true delight um, this is uh, composed of questions that she has gotten, like actual questions from children throughout her time as a funeral director. And so they're all hilarious. I was on a road trip with my girlfriend and I was just read. I was like, can I read you some of these? Because they're short little sections like they have the question and then her answer, which is always like, like fun and funny and informative And so, like, some of the examples are, uh, can I get my parents' skulls after they die? Which, by the way, there was a whole lot about the law as relates to dead bodies that I did not know at all. And it's basically like, no, you can't. Or it's if you can, it's, like, extremely difficult to get that. Let's see. Can I preserve my dead body in amber like a prehistoric insect? Which (laughs) was like, kudos to that child. (laughs) That's, uh, that's real fun. Um, what are some other really good ones? Oh, what would happen to an astronaut body in space? If I died making a stupid face, would it be stuck like that forever? And can we give grandma a Viking funeral? Which I learned the Viking funerals that they show in movies are not real. Like, we're not a thing. Because if you shoot an arrow, like a burning arrow into a boat with a body on it, the boat will burn up before the body does. What? That blows my mind. Man. I know. It's not good. So they were like, it's very possible that this came about as an idea because the Vikings would have like like the shape of a boat like on land as a funeral thing and burn that. But they wouldn't like put the boat into water. <laughs> huh. Which is a bummer because it looks really cool when they do it. But anyway. I digress. So this book is super fun. Um, in terms of the actual t- title, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? The answer is not immediately, but maybe after a while, yes. And again, that was fascinating as to why. Um, she also talks about dogs in that respect. Basically, if you're feeling at all squeamish about, <laughs> about death slash dead bodies, don't read it. But it is a book by a funeral director who is famous for talking about death. 
So just know that you're getting yourself into that if you pick up any of her books, really. She also has a very fun YouTube channel that I recommend. She is uh, she is a general delight of a lady. So again, that is Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big Questions from Tiny Mortals About Death by Caitlin Doty. Excellent. Um, I've read Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and it is a really great memoir. So I have no doubt that this is equally as good. So excellent pick. All right. Um, my second pick is it's called Crossfire Hurricane Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI by Josh Campbell. And it out, comes out September 17th from Algonquin Books. And so firstly, I would like to say I think the title is kind of dumb. <laughs> um, say more about that. <laughs> I don't know. I Just something about like Crossfire Hurricane Inside Donald Trump's War on the FBI just sounds very – something about that just – rubs me the wrong way. But I actually, I really, really liked this book. So I want to talk about it, even the title, every time I say it, I'm like, oh, that just sounds weird. Um, so the, the the title comes from, uh, it's a Rolling Stone song, but it was also the operational name of the investigation into, of the, the Russia investigation. So Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the possible connection to the Trump campaign that the FBI started and then turned into the special counsel investigation. So I, that's where the title comes from. And so there's a reason that's what the title is. It just is so weird to me. So anyway, um, Josh Campbell uh, was an FBI special agent and he served as special assistant to FBI director James Comey. Uh, so he was like kind of an assistant, but also like way more than that. Um, and so he worked at the FBI for a long time. It was kind of his first job out of all of his training and everything. Um, but he uh, left the FBI in 2018 because he was really alarmed by the kind of political attacks on the agency. And so he wanted to try and um, combat that. So now I think he is a legal analyst on CNN and does some other journalistic writing and has written this book. So um, Campbell, in his position as a special assistant, was uh, with or very near Comey, during, James Comey, during many of the huge moments that are now kind of part of the whole Russia investigation story. Uh, and so in the book, he kind of gives his account of those moments and what he has learned about them since and what he has uh, interviewed and learned from uh, FBI colleagues, uh, former and uh, ongoing. So um, the book, in addition to that, also gives this actually part was almost more interesting to me was kind of a history of the FBI. Um, and it doesn't uh, go too far into some of the kind of scandalous or questionable history parts of the history, but it does talk a lot about the values and goals of the organization, how FBI investigations actually work, um, which I'm very much a person who loves to understand how things work. And so everything that was about like, this is how the FBI conducts investigations. And this is what this means. Um, I thought was very interesting. And then he also kind of shares his thoughts and also kind of the voices of many of his former colleagues, most of them speaking anonymously, um, to kind of show what it was like to be part of the FBI during this period of time in which the president has like repeatedly attacked the organization and tried to undermine his credibility and all of those kinds of things. So just like what it is like to be part of a, a unit of government that is just being maligned by uh, the person in power. And so I sat down to read this one and I wasn't totally sure if I was going to be into it or not. And then I finished it in like two days over Labor Day weekend um, because it was just I was fascinated by all of it. Um, so I just I love the inside the FBI parts of the book, um, the investigative techniques and the principles. And it was it was kind of nice to have the whole Russia kind of situation just spelled out really clearly and 
a given kind of hindsight what we already what we know now you know because that whole thing like trickled out and trickled out and trickled out and it was nice to kind of give it a whole um kind of a beginning middle and an end to have a story to it so i appreciated that about this book as well so um silly title but good book crossfire hurricane inside donald trump's war on the fbi by josh campbell um i want to point out to you the listener that kim's note on this is i think this title is dumb but I actually really like this book. <laughs> I'm sorry, Josh Campbell. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, man, that's great. Um, two questions. So uh, when talking about the sort of their brief whatever overview of the history, do they talk about how terrible J. Edgar Hoover was? Yes, that is a big part of it. Yep. Amazing. Um, also, this isn't a question. This is a comment. When I was in D.C. for a work event this year, I passed by – the FBI building and I got really excited because it's the <laughs> exterior shot for the X-Files whenever they're showing like Mulder and Scully being at work as opposed to in the field. <laughs> um, so I feel like, you know, even though the X-Files was kind of like the government's trying to cover things up, it also made me like the FBI much more than I would have if I had never seen the X-Files. A good point. Okay. So again, switching gears a little, um, my next pick is Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of Isis by Azade Moavini. So Moavini, uh, in 2015, she published a front page piece in the New York Times on Isis women defectors that was a finalist for a Pulitzer as part of the Times Isis coverage. This book, uh, she also wrote a memoir um, kind of about her time in Iran. And uh, this book is a an account of 13 women who joined, endured, and in some cases escaped life in the Islamic State. So it's really good. I wasn't sure about it because I've still kind of been avoiding harder issues um, just because, you know, life is a little overwhelming in general in the United States these days. But this book, I started it and I was immediately like, just her writing is really good. She she makes you feel a lot of empathy for these women. And that's, you know, a lot of her, her goal. So she talks about how there were these promises after the Arab Spring in 2011. Do, Kim, do you remember that? When like, yeah. I remember being mm -hmm. at work in the lunchroom and like the TV was on and it was just constantly showing like yeah. Syria and Egypt and all that. Anyway. So she talks about – I had just a weird flashback. So just put everyone back there in that time period. <laughs> so um, she talks about how at that point when all of these sort of basically dictatorships were collapsing in the Middle East um, and there was this like vacuum of power, these women um, heard this call from this newly formed, right, like Islamic State that was talking about sort of about like female empowerment, social justice, and just like calls to like aid the plight of fellow Muslims in Syria. And so all of these women emigrated from the United States and Europe, Russia, Central Asia, North Africa. There's this one really stirring part that takes place in Tunisia and the rest of the Middle East to join the Islamic State. And these were like educated daughters of diplomats, trainee doctors, just like teenagers, the straight A averages, but then also, you know, like working class drifters and these desolate housewives. So they set up these makeshift clinics and schools for the this like Islamic homeland that they envisioned, right? Like you... Um, especially if you're really dedicated to your religion and you feel like like one of the main people that she talks about is Noor. She's the one who lives in Tunisia. She's a teenager. And she felt like she was much more dedicated to Islam than her family, which I mean, 
I went through that as a teenager with Christianity where I just felt like, oh, my family is like, they don't get it. And like, you know, I have this thing. And unfortunately, she she watched like basically some really uh, in very conservative sort of intense things on YouTube by an Islamic sheik talking about why she should um, cover her face with a veil, right? So she goes to school with this veil, but in Tunisia at the time, it was extremely um, sort of anti-wearing any kind of veil. And her teacher like yelled in her face. And then the principal was saying like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. But no one, it says in the book, asked her why she felt that covering her face was her religious duty. And it says, had they given her the chance to mention this YouTube chic, then they might have informed her that there were opposing and actually stronger and more valid scholarly views about the subject, right? Like when you're interpreting mm-hmm. the Quran, but no one did that. So instead she just get, kind of got more and more like um, ensconced in her views and then she ends up joining the Islamic State. So Azade Moavini has intensely researched this topic, talked to all of these women. After they moved to this, you know, like sort of promised land in a sense of like, you know, oh, it's going to be amazing and we're, you know, going to be like having, we're all together with the same beliefs and it's so great. But then the militants basically expose themselves as nothing more than pretty much than violent criminals who are obsessed with power rather than the tenets of Islam. And then the women of ISIS were stripped of any agency, um, perpetually widowed and remarried. And ultimately, and this is all like a quote from the publisher trapped in a brutal lawless society. So they they basically, right, they went out with these like amazing promises and then found themselves in this nightmare existence. So it's, and again, I know that I said that even though I, I, I've been avoiding serious books, I feel like the way that Azade Moavini is like so committed to this cause and this topic and highlighting these women that it's not it doesn't feel like this you know like um hopeless narrative that you're plunging yourself into it feels like you are learning about this and can have a much more informed um idea of what's going on so it's a really good book um i always like a good cover the cover is very striking um if you want to check that out and again it is guest house for young widows among the women of isis by azade moavini Excellent. I'm really glad you talked about that one. Uh, it was on my list potentially to talk about because I really liked her previous two books. I just looked them up while you were talking. Her first memoir was from 2005. It's called Lipstick Jihad. And then her second memoir is from 2009. And it's called Honeymoon in Tehran. Uh, and they're both really good. So I have no doubt that this one's awesome too. So I'm glad you talked about it. My next pick is uh, actually kind of related, I would say. So it's called The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls by Mona Altahawi. And this book comes out September 17th from Beacon Press. Uh, And it is, to quote the book, a bold and uncompromising feminist manifesto that shows women and girls how to defy, disrupt, and destroy the patriarchy by embracing the qualities they've been trained to avoid. Um, And so the framing of this book is that um, uh, as the Me Too movement was kind of first getting legs, um, Mona Altahawi tweeted about her experience of being sexually assaulted during hijab when she was 15. Um, And she started a related hashtag called Mosque Me Too. Uh, And uh, she heard all of these stories from Middle Eastern women about uh, being sexually assaulted and harassed and and, and used that as sort of part of her activism. So she has been a journalist and activist and a feminist writing and protesting on women's issues and social justice issues around the 
world, uh, but especially in the Middle East. Uh, and so this book is it's a manifesto about tapping into anger and embracing what she calls what she says are the seven necessary sins, which are to be angry, ambitious, profane, violent, attention seeking, lustful, and powerful. Um, and what I liked about it is it is a, not a book about working within the system, right? Like I think a lot of books that are kind of take on the patriarchy and all of this are about kind of how like making making room for yourself within that system and trying to like push against it from from inside. And this one is just about like taking the whole thing down, like just dismantle it and don't just don't. Uh, and there's something super inspiring and interesting about that. And I have found a lot of in, of just uh, kind of ideas and inspiration in reading this book. Um, and it's I've, I've been sort of flipping between this one and um, She Said, uh, the one book I talked about earlier. And they're just like, they're really interesting kind of companions to each other and thinking about um, intersection or intersectionality and um, the way that race and uh, gender and um, all of those other kinds of things, LGBTQ issues, kind of all are connected together. So um, if you are looking for just like an uncompromising feminist manifesto, like this is the book for you. Uh, seven, the Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls by Mona Altahawi. I am always looking for an uncompromising feminist manifesto, Kim. So Yes, it's very on brand for us, I would say. <laughs> That is fantastic. So when it's saying kind of like, let's do a whole new thing, they get into what the thing is? Um, I'm only like maybe a third into it. So I think it's more just about like not putting up with not putting up with any of it and just like trying to take it down. But no, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, great. If this can be another report back thing, along with the how many boxes of books. <laughs> Yeah, 7,000 books. Yeah. Anyway, so my last pick, I believe, yes, for this section, is The Nature of Life and Death, Every Body Leaves a Trace by Patricia Wiltshire. Um, that's every body because it's about true crime. So it's not – do you get it? It's like a fun joke <laughs> within a sad topic. Okay, so this is a blend of science rating and true crime narrative. Patricia Wiltshire, she originally got really involved in botany and was like, I want to learn all about the natural world and plants like growing up. And eventually she got involved in, uh, she became a forensic ecologist. And her writing is, she's really interesting. So she's like this kind of grumpy British woman. And she <laughs> talks about, she seems a little bit like um, not super social but like in kind of a fun way where you're like <laughs> wow I wouldn't talk that way but I appreciate reading about someone who does and so she talks about basically her um the cases that she has been brought in to solve which the first one she talks about is um there's this there wasn't even a body found there was because there was this man who killed his girlfriend and he ended up confessing to it and they he but he when he killed her, he like drove her off in his car and dropped her off basically like in a forest after driving for a while and he had no idea where it was. So she examined his shoes and the floor mats in his car and his car's bumper and I think some of his clothing and like picked up all of these different pollen spores and was like, okay, so there's like a lot of birch there and there's going to be like some conifers and just like 
essentially told them she even was like she's not gonna be buried underground she's gonna be buried in like a pile of like birch shavings and this all was true and it like helped them find exactly where to go like off the path and how far and what was going to be around it it was amazing and especially in a time when forensics are getting questioned a lot more right like um hair and blood spatter analysis are basically out the window people are like this is not real science um it was really comforting to know that there's a field of forensics where it's like oh no 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 this works and you can like analyze these different things and create this whole picture in your mind she comes up with this like who what how and when of a crime um so she's become one of the most in-demand police consultants in the world and this book talks about her journey from college professor to as the description says crime fighter which (laughs) i like that one um so yeah she's solving murders locating corpses exonerating the falsely accused using again um plants animals pollen spores fungi and microbes and sort of talking us through uh, us being the reader um how we pick those up every day right and we don't see them because they are so tiny but she sees them so Okay, again, that is The Nature of Life and Death, Everybody Leaves a Trace. It's really good by Patricia Wilcher. That's really funny. I started reading this one, and I think the way you described her voice is exactly right. It's very grumpy British lady and kind of uh, terse. But yeah. like the whole <laughs> the whole thing, like as she's describing what she does and how she figures things out, it's really fascinating. Again, another book that's like, how does this work? Um, so yeah, I read a little bit of that one and I agree. It's it's fun. A little odd but fun. So my last pick, I felt like I had done three books that were like kind of heavy and I was looking for something more fun to talk about. So uh, the book that I chose is How to Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems by Randall Monroe. And it came out a little while ago, September 3rd from Riverhead. Uh, And so this is another book by the creator of the webcomic XKCD, which is one of my favorites. And uh, this is a book is it's an entertaining and useless self-help guide of ridiculous solutions to common problems. Um, So there is a chapter that's called How to Throw a Pool Party. And then it just has a bunch of really ridiculous ways that you might build a pool. So like if you you (laughs) dig it out of the ground, like what would happen then? And if you're going to build it, you know, build an above ground pool, like what size can it be? And how do you figure that out? And then where do you get the water from? Like what if you were going to use plastic water bottles to fill it up and just kind of walks through just like ridiculous ways to do this thing. There's a chapter about how to make an emergency landing. And the way that he did this one is he um, interviewed uh, an astronaut, Colonel Chris Hadfield, who is an author who wrote a memoir that I super love. And I didn't write the title down, but it's very charming. And so he interviews him about all of these different absurd scenarios of crash landings and Hadfield just like tells him how he would land something in that situation. Uh, it's, it's so funny. Uh, Randall Monroe has has written a few books. Um, a previous one of his that I really like is called Thing Explainer. And so in that book, he uses drawings and only the thousand most common words to try and provide really simple explanations for very complicated things. So that's a lot of what he does is kind of like take simple things and make them complicated or complicated things and try to make them simple. And and this book reminds me a little bit of like Rube Goldberg machines where it's trying to sort of come up with the most complicated way to do something super easy. So, but this is about things that are kind of more elaborate than just flip a light switch. So it is just like silly and fun. And, you know, you can read a chapter or two before bed and it's just kind of a goofy little brain break. Um, Um, even though he's kind of giving you like math formulas and stuff about how this things work. So um, I thought it, 
just thought it was really fun and kind of a nice break from all the other like more serious nonfiction I have been talking about lately. So that is How to Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems by Randall Monroe. I love XKCD. I know. It's so great, right? Yeah. And so now that we have finished a new book bonanza, which is, whew, I think we didn't even take a break in there to like change segments. It was weird. Um, <laughs> we're going to go to how we normally close the podcast, which is what we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. Uh, and so I'm going to finish, uh, she said, obviously, because it's really good. But um, the other book that I just picked up from the library today, which is very exciting, is called Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America. And so this is a book that is basically like a history of television and kind of mass entertainment via television. And also uh, the story of Donald Donald Trump and sort of a cultural story of how he became this like person who can so manipulate the media so well and then like use that to sort of become a brand and then become the president. So I have a hard time with Donald Trump books, but I'm I'm really interested in this idea of like television and how it has affected all of the ways that we think about the world. So I'm excited to to get to that one. It's actually it's also new. I think it's just out within the last couple. It's out in September sometime. So I guess closing with another new book. So that is Audience of One: Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America by James Panawazic. Um, I'm very impressed with your ability to read books about the political situation right now. My book I'm reading right now is The Day the World Came to Town, 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland by Jim DeFeedy. Um, I've been listening nonstop to the musical Come From Away, which I saw recently mm-hmm. in Chicago, and I love it so much. So um, I've been mostly listening to the end, like on repeat. So I was like, I have to pick up the book about what happened um, in Gander, Newfoundland, which of course is, uh, they had, I think, 38 planes that were diverted on September 11th and they had to land at this airport in Gander, Newfoundland and all the local people like took these people in and it was so great and like heartwarming and the musical is awesome. Listen to Come From Away and read The Day the World Came to Town. I'm not very far into it, but I am almost positive it's going to be heartwarming. And with that... You can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please take a few minutes to find us on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. Uh, That helps people find us more easily. And then uh, while you're there, you can subscribe so that you can get new episodes of the podcast the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.